Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Friday, April 16th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mayor Nahed Nenshi. We got the mayor's reaction to this week's announcement that construction on the East Village Event Center project has been put on pause. Then we head stateside to catch up with Jackson Prosco, Global News Washington Bureau Chief. We get the latest on Thursday night's mass shooting in Indianapolis, as well as details on the suspension of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine because of health concerns. It's been an incredibly difficult year for the tourism industry. We speak with the CEO of Banff and Lake Louise Tourism about what we can expect to see for the region as we get closer to summer. And finally, he started out as an economist, but now he's referred to as the master of disaster. We meet author Dr. Randall Bell and learn about his latest book, Post Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science and Stories of Resilience. Well, the City of Calgary's event centre is on pause over disagreement about the costs. That's creating some friction at City Hall. We're going to get the mayor's thoughts on that in a minute. But first, we say good morning, Mr. Mayor. Mayor Nahed Nenshi, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Happy to be here. I'm glad you're here because uh, we heard you got your vaccine yesterday. We want to know how it went. And can you feel the microchip floating around in your arm at all? Well, I really asked the folks at the TELUS Convention Center to make sure that the 5G was installed near the exit <laughs> so that uh, we could get our faster connections right away and get those microchips activated. Perfect. Um, no, I actually I feel great. Um uh, it's been, what, 16 hours or something since mm-hmm. I've had it. I don't even have a sore arm, oh, so that's wonderful. Um, and I'm super happy to have done it uh, once uh, I was eligible. And that's really the key here is that I want to encourage everyone who is eligible to just get it done and get it done quickly. Let's do a blitz this weekend. So I'll remind everyone, if you're over 55, you are eligible. If you are like me, under 55, but have a chronic condition, you are eligible. If you're a First Nations person over 50, you are eligible. And if you're a healthcare worker, very broadly defined, except firefighters, that's a whole other issue. And teachers. You are eligible. And um, so go ahead and get it. And what you'll be surprised to learn is that if you go call 811 or go to the AHS online booking tool, how quickly you can get it. So if you're 55 to 64, you can walk into a pharmacy Or if you go to the AHS tool, a friend of mine did this yesterday, they literally got an appointment in a half an hour. Oh, wow. Luckily, they were right next to the Tellus Convention Center and they just went. Um, So it's really quick. You can probably get in this weekend. And even if you are in one of the other categories, uh, which are not uh, 55 to 64, you know, I have a friend who, again, booked with the Tellus Convention Center and got it for the next day. So appointments are available at your local pharmacy or at the AHS vaccine centers, just call 811 or go to uh, alberta.ca slash vaccination. Mr. Mayor, uh, the, 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 the massive site, TELUS, the mass vaccination site, uh, all of all accounts online and from friends that I've uh, spoken with talk about how happy everybody is there and how the oh. service is quick. Do you echo that? It was unbelievable. And so it was very, very quick. There was no line at all. I went at exactly my appointment time. And I walked in, went through some screening and walked right to a station and got my shot. By far the longest period was uh, the 15 minutes you have to wait after your shot. Um, Parking is free. Uh, Transit will be reimbursed if you go to that particular station, uh, that particular place. And people are super happy. And that is one of the few places, by the way, that is giving both types of vaccines. So... Uh, you can make an appointment for either one, and the online booking tool will sort you out. 
Yeah, and I actually was downtown the other day, Mayor, and I walked by uh, on the first day, and, and it, it, I poked my head in, and everybody, hi, waving. You could see the smiles in their eyes. There's even a place down at Stephen Ave there where cars can pull in to drop somebody off if you're not yep. parking or taking transit. So they've made it really easy, and that is great news. So uh, let's hope everybody... people were so great. Yeah. The, the, the workers there, you know, I had a, I had a third-year nursing student administer my vaccine, and she's just so happy to be of service. Uh, in doing this and the whole thing is beautiful it'll just make you happy a friend of mine said she thanked the nurse for giving her the shot and the nurse said no thank you for giving me the honor of being able to vaccinate you so i thought that was kind of neat too yeah it's very sweet and i i me being me i had to of course walk through the whole thing and thank everybody and they're like sir there are arrows on the floor just, <laughs> just go to where you're supposed to get go. out get out mayor get <laughs> out absolutely um, you know, I, we've, we, we'd like to keep you uh, for the next segment, but I want to get the ball rolling right now when we talk about the event center. Uh, your thoughts on the pause button being pushed and that decision made. Um, and I think I think one of your quotes was this, this happens a, a lot with big projects. Yeah, so I can't actually speak to the details of this. I'm legally bound by contract issues and by legislation for speaking to the details. But what I can very, very generally say is that this happens all the time in big capital projects. In fact, it's something, it's a kind of discipline that I have really pushed for. You know, every major capital project since I've been mayor has come in on time and on budget. And that is because we do the work up front, because you don't want to have scope creep or cost overruns once you're in the ground. And so this is not at all uncommon. You know, is it something that is on my worry list a little bit? Yeah. But, you know, it's probably number 10 on my worry list this week. Um you know, I know one of my colleagues, Councillor Farkas, did a whole thing about how this is the most stunning, shocking thing he's ever seen, which he generally does about once a month or two. He's very dramatic. Um, but um, it, it isn't. Uh, and things could go badly. Who knows? But and also, uh, I heard you say City Council made that decision. In fact, we did not. Oh. We leave this work to the professionals. And uh, and so, you know, the folks who are actually in the room managing the project are the ones who are saying, you know, let's just take a pause and make sure that we've got all the design details right, which is, as I said, quite common. Okay, well, we'll talk about that a little bit more coming up and uh, lots more going on down at City Hall. If you can hang on for one sec, we would appreciate okay. it. 819 on your Friday morning, and we are back with Mayor Nahed Nenshi. And Mayor, got a question from a texter asking about uh, something you said at the uh, the um, uh, presentation yesterday, the CED presentation, in terms of prices ramping up for things like steel and concrete and how they can affect the event center, that pause that we're talking about as well, the Green Line, Arts Commons, et cetera, and what that might mean down the road. Yeah, this is a broader issue. So, you know, a year ago, if we were talking, we would have said that we're going to be kind of in a prolonged down period. We're going to build a lot of infrastructure to create jobs and so on, because my rule always is build stuff when it's cheap and people are unemployed. Uh, We still have the people who are unemployed part. Uh, We've seen really unexpected rises, for example, in the price of lumber, which is now at record highs. And uh, President Biden in the U.S. has suggested a $2 trillion infrastructure program. And so we are expecting the price of things like steel and concrete to rise. And that has a couple of implications for us. The first is that we need some strategies to deal with it. So we're looking at hedging. We're looking at forward contracts and things to try and lock in price. Uh, as best we can, which we, we're pretty sophisticated at stuff like that. We know what we're doing. Um, but number two is that it really means that it's to our advantage to move quickly. 
So on a project like the Green Line, we really should be getting to contract as soon as we can so that we're not competing with every transit agency in North America um, for the same number of contractors and for the price of these materials. Ultimately, it probably means that we'll need to set aside a bigger cost. Every big project has a cost inflation number in it uh, embedded in the budget. It probably means we're going to have to set aside a little bit more money for kind of an inflation pool in case those cost escalations are not enough. All right, uh, switching gears one more time, I want to take a look back at something you mentioned earlier when you mentioned the event center. You said it's it's not number one on my list. It's probably as far down as number 10 at this point. I'm assuming, and, uh, you know, when you assume, um, <laughs> I'm assuming that uh, COVID uh, and uh, the situation with the coronavirus in the city is number one. What do you of see course. as next on the list as far as importance for our city as of April 16th? Well, absolutely, uh, coronavirus is number one, and I really need to highlight for everyone that um, it's bad. Uh, the, the exponential curve at this moment is as bad as I've seen. And you will have seen out of Ontario this morning, a place that has stricter restrictions than Alberta, they are expecting 18,000 cases per day. Um, so it is bad. We do need to worry about it a lot. Uh, probably number two of things I'm thinking about right now is the federal budget that is coming out on Monday. Uh, and what implications that will have in Calgary. I'm actually sort of feel like the rumors I'm hearing are that I, I will actually for once be happy with another government's budget, mm. but I'm not sure. So I got to be ready for different eventualities on that. And then number three, actually it's probably number two, um, is uh, our downtown strategy. We just uh, endorsed our downtown strategy at committee last week. Uh, now we've got to figure out how to fund it. So as always, my job is to go find some money to make this real and to bring life back into our downtown. Maybe we can chat more about that and, and how that's going next week when we check in with you. Thank you so much for your time this morning and have a great weekend, Mayor. Thank you so much, everyone. Stay safe. Have a great weekend. I have big, big plans. I think I'm going to do my taxes. <laughs> oh, that's right. exciting. Thanks, everyone. Fantastic. Thank you, Mayor. That is Calgary Mayor Nahed Nenshi. 7.09 on Mornings with Sue and Andy. And uh, from news of yet another mass shooting in the United States to a pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Jackson Prosco is, of course, Global News Washington Bureau Chief and joins us now for all the latest south of the border each and every Friday, actually. Good morning to you, Jackson. Good morning. So so what do we know? Can you, can you break down the latest on this uh, mass shooting? I think it was very late last night or yesterday evening in Indianapolis. Is it a FedEx depot where this happened? That's right. It's at uh, the second largest FedEx hub in the United States. And uh, what we know is that nine people are dead. One of them is the shooter uh, who took their own life. Uh, we believe the shooter was actually an employee at that FedEx depot. Uh, we're expecting an update here in about the next hour or so. Uh, to a little more as to what may have precipitated this and, and who the victims are. But, you know, really it is another uh, tragic mass shooting in this country in which it seems like they're, they're happening, uh, you know, Every single day, and, and really they are. Uh, the, you know, these large-scale events really are happening. Uh, we know the White House has placed an emphasis here on tougher gun control measures. They really want Congress to take some action here, and, and this is exactly why. From mass shootings to police-involved shootings, Jackson. Wow, we've got the Chauvin trial underway. We're also, you know, the Dante Wright trial. And then this new video released, I guess it was yesterday, of uh, in Chicago, police shooting a 13-year-old and killing him. It just it seems to be more and more that we're hearing these stories. 
Yeah, it's it's really awful. It is, you know, putting the, the spotlight further on issues surrounding police reform, police training, uh, the calls in some cities to essentially defund the police or change what police budgets are allocated towards. Uh, the Chauvin trial is expected to wrap up and be in the hands of a jury as early as Monday of next week. And, you know, it's not clear how long it may take them to reach a verdict. Any verdict in that case will have to be unanimous, and they're considering three different charges, second-degree murder, third-degree murder, or second-degree manslaughter. Uh, the prosecution is actually giving multiple pathways to possibly convict here. Uh, I think there will be tremendous amounts of fallout uh, to, to come from those other two police-involved shootings because they really are so horrific. And they've simply raised the natural question of, what are we training police if the gut instinct here is to shoot and kill? Uh, I think that's sort of the natural question that people are asking. What do we know at this point? I know it's in the early uh, days of the Dante Wright uh, investigation, a 20-year-old who was uh, fatally shot April 11th, so just a little less than a week ago. Because um, at this point, we're hearing that the officer meant to use her taser. Is, is, is this the, the latest on this news? And, and how does that happen? Have you had any insight as to how a, a taser could be mistaken for, for a pistol? That's right. And she's actually been charged now at this point. I believe the charge is second-degree manslaughter as well. Um, this is sort of one of the questions that comes up about police training. We know from the police chief uh, there in Brooklyn Center uh, that uh, essentially officers wear their gun on their dominant side. So if you're right-handed, you would wear your gun on your right hip and then the taser on your left hip. And, of course, I think the question that's going to arise from that is, isn't that then by default when you're, you're you know, using reflexive action in a, in a heated moment situation, meaning that you're reflexively pulling for least lethal force instead of less lethal force? I think that's sort of where that conversation is going to go. Uh, but certainly a lot of uh, criticism that how could you mistake the two? One is bright yellow and weighs about a third of uh, the amount as the other one, which is black and weighs substantially more. Bizarre, the video, even the officer was so shocked that she had shot that, that young man in the vehicle. Uh, it just It's an interesting one. We'll certainly be watching that along with the others that we've mentioned. And, and Jackson, a few other things we want to touch on with you. One of them is that uh, the president has announced pulling out the remaining U.S. troops from Afghanistan. And that is America's longest war, obviously, and doing it on an important anniversary. Yeah, the goal is to have it done by September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Uh, I think the, the sort of criticism here is that there are no longer any preconditions for withdrawal. President Biden is saying, look, the troops are coming home. If we sit here and keep trying to negotiate or have to have a certain threshold to meet before we do this, it's never going to happen. And so he's saying unilaterally it's time to end America's longest-running war, uh, regardless of where that leaves Afghanistan. Uh, I believe the U.S. will continue to fund the Afghan government and Afghan security forces, but obviously there's a lot of concern about the sort of power vacuum that this is going to leave behind in Afghanistan. Does it give room for the Taliban or terrorist groups to reorganize, perhaps retake control of the country? What does this do to the Afghan people? And what about all the coalition troops, including, you know, Canadians who fought and died in Afghanistan? Uh, was it all for nothing if the U.S. is just walking away at this point? Jackson, uh, you know, uh, here in uh, on the other side of the border, here in Canada, we're very much looking forward to the Johnson & Johnson, or at least were very much interested in, in that vaccine coming to, you know, our soil. And the more the merrier up here. And now we're hearing that it's been put on pause, the use of the J&J &J vaccine down south? Yeah, this pause is kind of interesting terminology. Essentially what it means is that it's no longer being administered at uh, federally run and state-run vaccination sites. But if your doctor has it, they may still choose to administer it to you after consultation about possible side effects. And uh, essentially, the I'm not a scientist, but the short of it is that the technology behind the vaccine is similar to the AstraZeneca vaccine. There's sort of a, a technology, a way it works 
that's similar. And the blood clotting that's taking place is also similar to what we've seen with some reports with AstraZeneca. Essentially, what it's doing is triggering in very rare instances, we're talking less than one in a million, uh, a rare immune system response that causes people to experience brain blood clots. And uh, essentially, what this pause does is a warning to doctors to say, hey, look, if you have somebody who is recently vaccinated with this, if they show up with severe headaches, severe abdominal pain, leg cramping that's really severe, uh, this could be a side effect, and you need to treat this in a specific way because the sort of traditional response to blood clotting could actually make this worse. But I think the question is, how long does this pause last? Uh, given how rare these instances are and sort of how rare the demographic involved is, it's only women between 18 and 48, six total cases out of 7 million shots. Uh, very possible the pause is lifted soon with just sort of advice or guidance about who to give this to and who to avoid giving it to. And Jackson, in terms of cases in the United States, uh, I know there were some, you know, warnings that, you know, a potential third wave might be hitting certain states and, you know, a suggestion that more masks be put in use. How are, uh, what's the situation in terms of numbers right now? Yeah, they're certainly on the rise again, uh, close to about 75,000 new infections uh, every single day in this country. Places like Michigan are, you know, doing as poorly as Alberta and Ontario right now. They're back to right where they were in the the winter wave and are close to surpassing it. Uh, Generally speaking, most cases are seeing cases, uh, their, their numbers rise. And I think the question is, does this sort of fourth wave actually surpass what we saw? I think there's a lot of suggestion that it won't, but it could certainly be a bump or simply we're stuck at this very high level of infection. And what that means is that even for people who are fully vaccinated, you know, those so-called breakthrough cases, those rare instances of people contracting the virus even after fully vaccinated, there's a highly likelihood of that, higher likelihood of that, excuse me, because there's so much virus out there right now. Uh, you know, the, the people who are contracting after being fully vaccinated, it's mild cases, but the point is it's still a possibility so long as there is still so much virus out there. Wow. Incredible time. Lots happening. Thank you for the update, Jackson. We appreciate it. Have a great weekend. You as well. That is Jackson Prosco, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. There's big hope for a busy summer ahead for Banff's tourism industry. It's certainly been a difficult past year. So what can we expect for this summer in the mountain town? Joining us with details is Leslie Bruce, President and CEO of Banff and Lake Louise Tourism. Good morning, Leslie. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks very much for the chance to chat. Okay, so, I mean, without going into great detail, 2020, obviously, a very difficult year for Banff and Lake Louise tourism, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we are a town that relies solely on tourism for our economy. We're people that pay our mortgages and feed our families uh, by welcoming people into our hometown. And so it's been really, really tough. One of the most compelling stats for me coming out of Destination Canada is that our current situation in the tourism industry is worse than the aftermath of 9-11 SARS and the 2008 economic crisis combined. You know, one in 10 jobs in the country is based in tourism. And in our town, it's at least 97% of the jobs are based on tourism. Mm. Leslie, we often think of it as our winter playground, the region of Banff and Lake Louise. Uh, But I'm wondering, how important are the summer months ahead for Banff and Lake Louise in, in both economies? In, in a single word, it is going to be critical. 
it is so important to us. Our our actually uh, destination is really built on summer tourism. Frankly, uh, this is going to be a really unique opportunity for Canadians. We're an international bucket list, and so typically we see you know anywhere from 50, 60 percent of most businesses' revenue coming through between June and September. Some businesses up to 75, 90 percent of their revenue comes through in the summer, and so without international visitors this summer, we're really going to be counting on Canadians and. From what I can see, things are looking really promising, uh, but truthfully, we, we need this so badly. We need it. So even with the, the current climate, we're, we're not out of this pandemic yet. You're still welcoming all of us, all Canadians. You, you want us to come to the mountains this summer? Absolutely. It's it's really tough to be talking about this right now as we're watching cases escalate and, and we can see how dire things are at the moment. But it's our fundamental belief that the vaccination schedule will pick up. We'll see improvement. When we look to the UK and the US, we can see what's happened in a very short amount of time once we get a critical mass of people vaccinated. And so I'm trying really hard with my team and with our community to focus on today, which is keeping people safe, adhering to the restrictions, really being careful and and frankly trying to be supportive of our local businesses that are being asked to really sit tight and wait while preparing to welcome people this summer. We're absolutely going to see things stay in place like masking, uh, like planning ahead and, and really being careful and cautious about how you experience the park. But we're really confident that by this summer, we're going to see a much more uh, open opportunity to invite people back to our beautiful place. Melissa, can you talk about, from the uh, business perspective, the challenges, be it retail or hospitality, like restaurants and lodging, on how they're preparing for what you're saying? It's such a busy time, but we're still not exactly sure what sort of volume we'll be seeing as we're still in amidst the pandemic. Man, that's probably been, the ambiguity has probably been one of the hardest things to cope with, you know, mentally as well as from a practical planning perspective. We're working really closely with the town of Banff and the community in Lake Louise as well as Parks Canada to really create, uh, I think, opportunities and options that assume we're going to need to create uh, physical distancing. So I think that's number one, is that we are planning for that. But planning it in a way that isn't just about uh, the restrictions, it's about how do you create an incredible experience while offering more opportunity for distancing. And so we're seeing this year some really cool stuff launching, some new cycling opportunities to help people spread out into the destination. Uh, We're seeing some new product come online with, with tour operators and and, and local businesses and guides coming at it differently to really help showcase this country and this part of the country to Canadians. And so, again, finding different ways to invite people here and and really, I guess, you know, show off the place that we love to call home while also being creative about how to keep people safe and focus on that, that safety for our visitors, but also, of course, for our employees and for our community residents. Leslie, before we let you go, anything you want to remind us about as the weather warms up and we all start heading out to the mountains? Yes, I I would just like to remind people to plan ahead. We're really working hard as a community to keep people safe, and that really counts on everybody that comes to visit, following the rules and restrictions. And we are as eager as everyone to see those ease. Uh, But right now, first and foremost, we're focused on staying open as much as we can and keeping people safe. So that's going to be key. And you can do that by uh, checking out the website, exploretheparc.ca. Exploretheparc.ca. Thanks for your time, Leslie. 
Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. That's Leslie Bruce, president and CEO of Banff and Lake Louise Tourism. Dr. Randall Bell is an economist by trade, but has become an authority on trauma. In fact, he's often called the master of disaster because of the work he does. Dr. Bell has a new book out. It's called Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science and Stories of Resilience. And he joins us now. Good morning, Dr. Bell. Good morning, Sue. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's just start off with this. How the heck did you become an expert in trauma? Well, I started my career decades ago as an economist, and I had this unique access to disaster sites all around the world, uh, the Bikini Atoll we- uh, nuclear weapons test sites and the World Trade Center and hundreds of cases. And I found the people behind the statistics more interesting than, than the, the calculations I was making. So, I, you know, years ago, I, I started digging in and, and researching the whole topic. You know, and I think that it's interesting because you're an economist and generally you can easily talk over people's heads. But one of the sayings that you have uh, surrounding trauma really hit home uh, for, for myself, which in the simplicity of it, which is the problem is not the problem. The problem is how we react to the problem. Tell us about the importance of that saying and why you hold it so close. Well, exactly, because, for example, when I worked on Hurricane Katrina, you know, the, the obvious problem was the hurricane destroyed, uh, you know, literally thousands or hundreds of thousands of houses. But the real problem was, okay, that's happened. How are we going to react to it? Because you basically have three choices to dive and stay stuck where you are, to survive and get back on your feet, which is very admirable. But the people I really focused on were those who thrived, who it was as if the trauma uh, – kind of woke them up and they did something really remarkable after the uh, the trauma that they otherwise wouldn't have done. That That's really the, the specialty of my focus. So, I mean, what are some of your key suggestions to allowing that to happen? Because trauma, let's face it, can be devastating, right? So what happens to a person who gets stuck versus that someone who thrives coming out of it? It, it may sound simplistic, but uh, that's a, a critically important question because it's, it's really those who make a conscientious decision and say, you know what, um, I've always dreamed of doing this, or I've always dreamed of doing that, and I'm going to use this fuel from this trauma. And, and let's face it, trauma you know, creates a lot of energy. And, and they tap into that, and they, they pr- use that as basically fuel to propel themselves to places they never did before. But it, it really comes down to a conscientious choice. Dr. Bell, whether it's natural disasters or just a disaster of a different variety, um, it's interesting because that's your specialty, but the applications for your approach could very much uh, be used during this pandemic and as we move post-pandemic. How do you see that working? Well, you're exactly right. I started to work on this book, uh, researching it over 10 years ago, and uh, coincidentally, it was released right you know, in the middle of a pandemic. And, and it doesn't really matter whether it's a, a death or a divorce or a disease or a pandemic, what, whatever it is, the principle, the underlying principles are the same. Um, you know, I don't specialize in, in, you know, in the middle of trauma, you know, how do you handle a trauma? That's more first responders and, med, you know, medical personnel and so forth. But after the trauma, um, how do you kind of, you know, if you kind of get stuck in that funk, you know, after the trauma, how do you get out of it? How do you get out of the depression and that kind of thing? And regardless of what type of trauma hit us, uh, in my case, I had uh, open heart surgery when I was a little boy. Um, we all have different traumas. Uh, the, the, the recipe for success is the same no matter, no matter what. 
Dr. Bell, part of the title of your book is about stories of resilience. Can you share a couple of those inspirational stories that, that you share with us, the reader, in your book? Yeah, I, 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 I not only did the academic research with the, with the you know, the, the rules and, and regulations, if you will, of, of tra- uh, trauma science, but I interwove all of that with people's actual stories and uh, I happen to know all these people, and, and uh, they've done fantastic things in spite of the fact they were dished out a really heavy dose of trauma. So, Dr. Bell, are some people just easier making this transition and sw- switching the, flipping the switch, if you will? Or uh, is this something that you know, can be learned uh, by somebody? You know, that's an important question because, to be fair to the science, yes, some people have kind of a natural resilience, kind of an ability to bounce back. It may be their DNA, but the fact is in my prison volunteer work up in San Quentin prison, it it really doesn't, I've seen some people who didn't have that DNA and yet they apply these principles and they've done some really remarkable things. One guy I met up in San Quentin, I just went to his uh, uh, college graduation. He graduated with honors. I didn't graduate with honors and now he's on his way for a PhD. So uh, anybody, whether you have that predisposition or not, can bounce back. Sounds like a book we can all use right about now. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, thank you, Sue. Appreciate it. Appreciate it as well. Dr. Randall Bell is an economist and author. His new book is called Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science, and Stories of Resilience. It's so crazy because from an economist to To this, um, in the book, in the timing, you heard him talk about that, how it came out, actually, just actually came out in the middle of the first year of the pandemic. Ironically enough. Incredible. And but I think we could all use that. I do like what, what you pointed out, and it is a great line, and it is something to remember. The problem is not the problem. The problem is how we react to the problem. And that really, you can apply that to every aspect of your life. Well, they say with anything in your life that happens to you. It's not whether it's good or bad. It's, 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 it's how you, mm-hmm. you know, uh, react to it, as, as, you, as you mentioned there. Sounds common sense, not so common, particularly when you're dealing with a natural disaster or something that just kind of rocks your world. It's hard to find that uh, ground. And, uh, you know, one of the quotes I like is it's easy to practice patience when you have nothing to to test your patience. (laughs) That's true. I can be patient all day until the kids are running around like fools, breaking things in the house. And I'm trying to cook dinner and the doorbell's ringing and the phone uh, the doorbells are ringing and the phone's ringing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's very difficult. So but you know, uh, do pick up the book. As you and I were talking about too, off the air, it, it does kind of relate to, um, you know, The Secret or The Law of Attraction, which is another book by Michael Lozier. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, the more you put out there, the more you get back the same. So if you're putting out negativity and unhappiness, you're going to get more of that because the universe can't distinguish between the two. It just gives you back more of what you're putting out there. So... You know, how you react to the problem is up to you, and you'll get more of that back in the end. And I follow, I I, I saw the movie The Secret, and I've read different books, even The Celestine Prophecy, which is fiction, but it's along those same lines. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you think of it as hokey, that's fine. But basically, at the the core of it, it's having a positive attitude. Truly. Like you can imagine, and and, and life is easier when you have a positive attitude Mm -hmm. because people react differently, and it, it takes a lot less energy. Uh, to try to look on the bright side than to to pile on the negative, doesn't it? Just like uh, fewer muscles to smile than it takes to frown.